This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Homelessness in America is both difficult to understand and seemingly impossible to eliminate. Indeed, it is the blanket use of the term homeless for all those without permanent housing that can both improperly generalize the wide range of causes and profiles of homeless citizens and invite simple policy remedies that fail to address the underlying conditions that led to the vulnerability. Is the inability to meaningfully reduce the homelessness rate in the United States a function of inadequate public attention and resources? Or could the problem be a mismatch between the needs of homeless individuals and the bureaucracy that has evolved to address it? My guest today, Stephen Eide, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor to its City Journal magazine, and author of the recently released book, Homelessness in America, The History and Tragedy of an Intractable Social Problem. Stephen will share with us the themes of his book, including the history of the public perception of homelessness, how our well-intentioned but bluntly applied policy interventions have led to disappointing outcomes, and how a shift away from seeing the problem as a lack of housing toward a view that aspires to help each homeless person connect to his or her family, community, and job opportunities can offer a more durable welfare solution. We'll also discuss the unique challenges of housing presented by high cost of living cities like Boston and make suggestions for our new mayoral administration for serving our most vulnerable citizens. When I return, I'll be joined by author Stephen Ide. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm pleased to be joined by senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of the recently released book, Homelessness in America, Stephen Eide. Welcome to Hubwonk, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Well, I just uh, finished reading your book. It was quite an eye-opening experience. It's very dense, very well-researched, uh, and I, I think I learned a lot. Um, for our listeners, I think the concept, particularly our urban uh, listeners, uh, interact with the homeless uh, perhaps frequently, uh, but many of our listeners may have um, a family member for whom uh, homelessness may be a risk. So uh, your book dives deeply into the, uh, the history, the diagnosis, the public policy efforts uh, to address homelessness. Uh, but of course, your subtitle is The History and Tragedy of an Intractable Social Problem. So that gives our listeners, some sense of uh, your humility when approaching this issue. So let's start at the top. Let's unpack um, where your book begins with the history of how we have historically looked at people who uh, don't have a home. Yes. Well, when I first started researching this issue, one thing that struck me and then still strikes me is this the funniness of this term homelessness, because, you know, it wasn't always in popular use. There were other terms that were used in the past to apply to, you know, very poor um, mostly single men who didn't have a defined place in a family or community. So they were kind of placeless men. They were called hobos, tramps, bums. Many of these terms strike us as you know, politically incorrect. We don't use them anymore. But their usage also reflected, I think, a different understanding of the problem that people were dealing with. And, and that one way to think about that none of the terms that people use to describe essentially the pre-modern homeless population said anything about those guys' home, home, housing situation. 
Um, they, they were defined, there was a debate about what to do about them, but that debate was not as centrally focused on their housing situation as it is now. Yes, I remember, um, again, you mentioned some names that are now, as you say, politically incorrect, but I remember um, sort of romanticized notions of these uh, uh, people who um, traveled on trains and things like that. You cite it in your book. I remember, I have to admit, and I don't know if this is a bad admission, I remember in being in uh, grammar school class, we uh, sang that uh, Roger Miller song, King of the Road, uh, uh, where you're romanticizing someone who, you know, literally makes a living just sweeping floors and moving around. Uh, I remember being a a bum for Halloween, having uh, torn clothes and some um, soot from the fireplace for my cheeks. So we wouldn't do that anymore. Uh, we've shifted from uh, uh, sort of a romanticized notion in the past to more uh, certainly sympathetic uh, uh, um, view. Your book um, uh, lays out phases of our perception of homeless, uh, whatever we're going to call it homelessness now, um, uh, from what you described as sort of um, uh, vagrants to where we are now, where we seem to universally uh, embrace this notion, this word of homelessness. Uh, take us through those phases. Yeah, I, as I see it, homelessness in America, you could break it down to three general historical eras. The first, um, you're talking about the post-Civil War era and what I call in the book, the Romantic era. Um, and that was the era, as you described, of the, the riding the rails or riding the rods as they, the guys making their way all throughout the country on, this, on the newly developed railroad network in America. Um, that was where you had these, these classes of guys who called themselves hobos, tramps, bums. And it was romanticized because you had many, um, you, were, you, you mentioned the songs that were written about them. There were also many books, poets went out trying to make sense of these guys. In a ways, it was, they were somewhat like the Beats or the Hippies or something. People were fascinated by this subculture with its own like lingo <clears throat> and music and so forth. Um, that era persisted through, um, I would say, about the Great Depression. Around that time, the, the, the labor market gets settled. Maybe we as a country get more settled. You know, we don't have these masses of men riding around, moving with the rhythms of the seasonal agricultural economy which was the case in the post-Civil War era. The, the, the working hobos, the tramps who are moving around, they disappear from the scene. And what is left is what you might say were the bums, the guys who are um, kind of retired hobos, disabled, um, very high rate of alcoholism. And they lived in these neighborhoods that we called Skid Row neighborhoods. The most famous was perhaps the Bowery in New York City, but every major city had a neighborhood like this, including Boston. That Skid Row era of homelessness lasts from, you know, basically the post-war era until around 1980, and that's when the modern era kicks off. I don't think, and we're, we're talking about the homelessness challenge, you're not talking about major changes, at least in terms of the character of the problem between 1980 and where we are now. So the changes you describe in the book um, uh, are both the perception and then the reality of who are these uh, homeless people. Um, and you almost describe them hand in glove, meaning as policy changes, uh, the response to those changes of policy means you got different people um, joining the ranks of the homeless or coming off the ranks of the homeless. Share for our listeners how you see, let's say, from the earliest efforts to try to mitigate homelessness to more present days, how has this sort of uh, give and take or cause and effect interacted to shape what we had in the past to what we have now? Well, yeah, I mean, I try to be somewhat sympathetic to the efforts of like policy reformers, you know, urban planners to do something about, you know, tough social problems. I mean, it's kind of easy to throw those people under the bus. So <clears throat> they didn't know what they were doing. But, you know, they saw these you know, disgraceful conditions and they wanted to do something about them. They didn't solve it. They created new problems. But, you know, 
in terms of the immediate post-war era, these Skid Row districts, you had a lot of cities who were worried about their futures. You know, you saw that, you know, um, the, the suburbs are being developed, what is going to happen to downtowns? Some of those downtown districts were occupied by these Skid Row neighborhoods, um, with the, the defined by their stock of SRO, very, very low quality housing, these hotels that could be rented out for like, you know, 20, 30 cents a night. And um, so people were like, you know, we need to do better here. We need to breathe new life into our cities. And so those neighborhoods were targeted by urban renewal. I guess the hope was that these guys would go away. Sometimes they, maybe some way they'd be provided more for by new program, new um, programs. Um, but in, the result was that we destroyed their neighborhoods and they started popping up in parks, train stations in ways that they never had before. This, uh, these, this tent city phenomenon really was not going on back in the 1960s. <clears throat> and the other one I'd mentioned because it's, it comes up so often in the homeless debate is the mental health, the mental illness aspect of it. Uh, you know, this is really a kind of dog that didn't bark phenomenon. When you research the history of the homelessness, you're like, you know, I really don't see people talking a lot about schizophrenia when they're talking about the tramps and the bums, you know. Now, you know, the man on the street, that really defines the problem uh, for him. You know, and I think that that probably just has a lot to do with the very large kind of asylum population, the institutionalized population that we used to have in this country and that we decided we wanted to approach differently. Indeed. So uh, again, to bring it to a sort of policy, uh, modern times, I, I personally became sort of politically aware and policy aware during the 80s during the time of Reagan. Um, uh, proverbial uh, uh, welfare reform was really uh, among the central cores of his uh, his uh, policy. Um, I remember him saying tongue in cheek, um, we had a war on poverty and poverty won. I think that was a reference not to uh, um, you know, scoffing at public policy or the, the great society from the 60s, but rather saying uh, not only was much of our policy ineffective, it was counterproductive. Uh, and that was followed through by Clinton the next uh, next decade where uh, genuine uh, welfare reform uh, happened. Inevitably, homelessness integrates with this welfare uh, state, this welfare reform. Did we see dramatic changes from, let's say, the ambitious plans of the 60s to, uh, you know, End poverty and therefore end homelessness, uh, or have uh, have these uh, policy or these uh, expenses, these programs continue to grow uh, unabated through all the decades. Yeah, well, you know, I think when you research the issue, you find that government in America never really gets smaller. You know, if, if the economy grows and we have more money to spend on public programs, like we do it, at least as a much as a share of the economy. <clears throat> um, the welfare reform, because Reagan was a vocal welfare reformer and he talked big talk about doing something about the Great Society, he gets associated with the creation of modern homelessness in a way that I think is basically unfair because I think though the emergence of modern homelessness um, coincided with the Reagan administration, um, the causes for it were developing in like the 60s and 70s before he took office. Um, we have seen during the welfare reform era a reasonable, pers reasonably persistent um, support for, you know, sort of work requirements, sort of a work orientation to at least the cash assistance programs in America, more so than we did before welfare reform. But on other fronts and other parts of the vast American welfare state, we've actually seen movements in opposite directions, more towards sort of like open-ended um, assistance programs where the philosophy is that to, to require any sobriety, to require new behavioral expectations in exchange for the receipt of government benefits, 
would be bad, counterproductive, unscientific. That is a philosophy and very much a kind of an anti-welfare reform philosophy that really took hold in these new homeless services systems that we developed in the 90s and beyond, and that in kind of a weir very weird way stand in contrast philosophically uh, to other parts in the welfare of the welfare state, which in many ways still, I think, behave along the lines that the welfare reformers um, expected. I'm, I'm surprised I've gotten this far into our conversation without first sort of uh, framing the, the term homelessness, because I think you go to great lengths in your book, and correct me if I'm wrong, to say you know, the fundamental problem with homelessness uh, policy is we, we lump all homelessness uh, into one big uh, group uh, without understanding there's many reasons, many causes, and therefore many, many solutions. Uh, take us through where you see all the many stripes, if you will, um, causes and, and you know, uh, let's start perhaps with the uh, the fringe case, you know, the people who are just on the edge of uh, being integrated uh, to society, to those who are, as you say in your uh, subtitle, intractable, people who, you know, we are, are the most difficult to, to, uh, to reach. Yeah, I mean, you know, one, the, the maybe the simplest framing, although one that policymakers use the most of is that, yeah, the sort of down on their luck or episodic homelessness versus the chronic cases. It's still very crude, but it's maybe a way to begin to enter into this debate. Down on their luck cases, people who have a very short-term experience with homelessness, you're basically talking about the low-income population. Maybe they happen to live in a city where housing is more expensive than others, but they're relatively easy to help. Um, the chronic cases are the people with some sort of disability, um, often a serious mental illness. Um, they're more alienated from their social support networks, from their friends and family, if they have any work history, it's not it's not very recent, and they've been homeless for a long time. So they're much harder to help, and it's also much more difficult to sort of calibrate what our expectations are for these people. Is the idea that we just give them housing, shut them in private apartments, and you know we don't want to know what goes on behind closed doors, or are we really trying to re restore them to mental stability, um, restore them to sobriety? Maybe some of them might be capable of some sort of work to, uh, of working and of reconnecting with friends and family. Um, those are the type of expectations I think we're more likely to have if we know someone like that or someone on the verge of that in our own lives. But when that could translate it into public policy, um, the expectations have a way of lowering where it's like, we just wanna get them housing and get them off the street. Hopefully they do better than that, but we're not gonna really hold ourselves accountable to more outcomes beyond that. Yes, again, you, you do lay out the range of reasons or types of homeless individuals uh, from temporary to, to more uh, more permanent. I think uh, one of the great insights that uh, goes throughout your book is that, um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm misquoting you, but that you don't become homeless when you run out of uh, financial capital, but rather social capital. Rather, you, you've become disconnected from friends, family, community, job, all of these kinds of things. And in a sense, um, you're, you're, uh, having no home is just among the many problems, really more a symptom than the problem. You lose your home after you've lost everything else. Uh, say more for our listeners what you mean by this sort of uh, need, not necessarily for a home for the homeless, but rather connection. Yeah, I mean, I think people with, a very, with untreated serious mental illness or raging drug addiction are hard to live with. Um, even if they have families who are, will put up with them for a while, that's a fragile situation um, and it often snaps. 
But, you know, when we talk about the fraying social fabric, decline of social capital, it, it's difficult to think about gov what government can do, what policy can do. What can government do to restore you know, about the single parent family? I mean, very well-intentioned people have been trying for a long time. And I think we remain very um, flummoxed as to where, where to go with that. But I think one thing, you know, we can do is just to focus on trying to set up programs and a lot, a lot of times you're basically just talking about a job where people who have had a rocky past can participate in these programs that provide a kind of independent um, testament to their former friends and family that they've changed, that they've achieved a degree of stability, and that maybe now would be a good time to start like repairing those bonds. Um, just to give somebody housing, you know, doesn't tell them their former friends and family a lot about where they are now and whether or not they're really more reliable than they used to be. Um, but maybe, you know, on a community basis in limited circumstances, you know, it would be appropriate for government to raise the expectations a little bit and do more to try to repair these bonds because it's just, it's just such a tragedy, you know, what we see in these people's lives. Indeed, by saying it's a, a loss of connection uh, rather than a loss of an actual home, that flies in the face of what you describe in your book as the dominant orthodoxy within the homeless expertise, expert community. That is, look, uh, before you do anything, get these folks homes and then everything else comes second. Uh, you, you describe this, and I think it's generally described as a housing first, uh, um, I don't know if you call it a movement or a, a philosophy, but it effectively says, look, what they do is their business let's get them in a home and whatever their situation is, it's decidedly better because they've got a home. Uh, your book challenges that uh, notion in that it's as it's, it's likely to be counterproductive as productive. Say more for our listeners. Why is housing first um, not necessarily the way to go? Well, I think there's no question that we're going to have to provide subsidized housing for people. If you look at the scope of what places like California, New York do, what the federal government does, we do a lot on that front. Um, so what are we doing while we're doing the housing thing? And what do we hold ourselves accountable for? If, you know, the, um, the end of wisdom, the beginning, middle and end of wisdom and homelessness policy is how much money did you devote to subsidized housing this year? If that's all you're holding yourselves accountable for, well, then, you know, we're not going to make as much progress on those social employment, um, behavioral health fronts. You know, we can design housing programs in different ways. We can design housing programs that, that are set up for people who are interested in sobriety and who want to meet other people who can support them along that path. Or we can just say, we're going to give you an apartment. There are going to be some other people in the same building with you who are doing things that, you know, are not so attractive, but best of luck to you and your own personal independent journey onto sobriety. Um, and housing first, you know, we need to realize that some people that the road to recovery is going to be rocky for a lot of people, maybe not achievable for all people. So we have certain programs for those people. It shouldn't be the guiding philosophy. It is such just such a dominant philosophy, dominant narrative. You know, it's very difficult to set up a program to get for home to help homeless people for um, for which you could receive federal funding and in many cases any government funding that's not operating around these housing force housing first lines. And I think that's a really um, bad problem that we need to change. So I'm going to give you a chance. I'd like to do this with uh, many of our guests, uh, experts who are, are sort of fighting uh, sort of the, the uh, dominant narrative. And let's assume you were uh, a king for a day um, and you could uh, do what you wanted, 
including some of the more provocative assertions in your book, like um, getting rid of the homelessness uh, industry uh, expertise altogether, which I think is quite provocative for a book on homelessness. So start there. Say why is uh, let's say the the, uh, the the why are the folks in charge now getting it wrong and what would you do to reorder the world that would indeed address the actual problem at hand yeah well when you're working on all these problems poverty you know prisoner reentry addiction <clears throat> um, failing schools child welfare it's difficult to separate these problems completely they have all have a tendency to blend in to one another but as much as possible we set up these independent agencies to reckon with these problems in a somewhat independent fashion so we have mental health agencies we have you know workforce development programs we have school departments um we when we were thinking about how to respond to homelessness we decided in addition to what all those guys already do we want independent homeless services systems so it so hud has separate programs just for homeless services in san francisco la new york city these enormous um, city departments by this point that are in, focused on this problem homelessness, which in a way I think, as we talked about, is is kind of weird, um, and maybe is not as independent or as, as just as real as distinct of a problem. So what we could do is just break up those homeless services systems, not get rid of the resources, not say, okay, good, you know, too bad guys, good luck. What we were trying to do didn't work. You give those resources to those other agencies and say, I know you've got some people who are working on addiction. Um, employment, who, who you have kids who need more housing stability and do, do better in schools. And those problems need residential resources to work on, to, for people to work on those problems. Okay, so we're going to give you residential resources to use to achieve your larger ends. I think that would be a better way to approach this kind of complex of problems that gets grouped under the umbrella term homelessness than the one we have now where we have these homeless services systems, but, you know, in, in a way, the only, the only goal that it makes sense to hold them accountable for is more housing stability. But we all would want more than just housing stability from anybody who we're close to in our lives. And so maybe it makes sense to kind of generalize that, and generalize that in a policy way. I, I want to dilate on that concept a little more and, and drill down and just make sure I understand what you're recommending. So rather than have the Department of Homelessness, you have rather a homeless department within, let's say, um, education, or we haven't talked about policing. A lot has been made in this sort of defund the police movement that says we need more sort of um, social workers to uh, address root causes of, of crime rather than, you know, put someone in handcuffs and, and lock them up. Rather, we need, let's say, uh, a, a specialist who can uh, uh, de-escalate, de um, let's say, uh, mentally ill uh, situations. So is, is that more what you're talking about, that each of the, the uh, government programs or government uh, agencies has its own element where it addresses the unique uh, challenges of its homeless members? Um, yeah, ba yeah, basically, yes. But they have <clears throat> their own larger goals that they need tools for, and this would be one of the tools that they use to pursue those larger goals, yes. Now, we're getting close to um, uh, our end of our time together. Uh, I think you're in New York City. Uh, I'm in Boston. I think you're a Bostonian yourself, right? You uh, went to school here. You got your PhD at BC? Uh, yeah, I went to graduate school at Boston College. Um, I lived in Boston while I was pursuing that, where I met my wife. All, my, all, three, kids, my, all three of my kids were born in the Boston area. And I worked in Worcester, actually, at a small think tank in Worcester um, between graduate school and starting at the Manhattan Institute in 
2012. So I have uh, still a great deal of fondness for the Boston area. Yes. Wonderful. And and I think our, our challenges are not quite what those are in uh, those case studies you mentioned in your book, such as New York or Detroit or San Francisco or Los Angeles. Uh, but we do have our challenges. Uh, we have a new mayor. I, I don't know if you've kept up on uh, what's yeah. going on here, a new mayor. Um, and uh, one of her, um, Mayor Wu's first uh, um, challenges was to deal with what we have as a homeless encampment at the intersection of uh, Mass Ave and Melina Cass Boulevard. We call it Mass and Cass. Uh, pretty big encampment. It's starting to encroach or it has encroached deeply into the South End, a very uh, sort of up and coming, wonderful neighborhood. Uh, and she's done her best to sort of uh, get rid of the, uh, the the visible problem, uh, uh, but there's a lot of controversy surrounding how one would do this. Uh, now, knowing uh, what you know about homelessness uh, and knowing what you know about Boston, uh, what would you recommend? Were she to be listening right now, what would you recommend? How would you tackle a, a, a situation uh, like Mass and Cass? Well, I do think you really have to hold the line on encampments. I mean, what we've learned from the California experience is that um, they, there's this kind of agglomeration dynamic where encampments, if you, they will grow um, if you don't um, cap them. Um, they will attract more people who would otherwise pursue alternatives. Um, it's a lot easier to be the 2001st person who's living on the streets of a city than the first person doing that. And so um, you really need to hold the line on that. And it's not, it's not something that you're going to be able to house your way out of because if, it's going to be very difficult to just develop enough subsidized housing rapidly enough to move every person off the street who wants a unit like that. That's something that Californians tried for everyone else, right? America is the experiment of America. American states are laboratories of democracy. So let some, let some other state be the guinea pig, right? Where California is kind of being the guinea pig for many other places on homelessness. And it's really important to learn from their experience. And what some Californians, as we've seen in these recent um, votes have shown that they really would prefer um, a different approach than, than the status quo. Boston is different, the climate matters a lot, but encampment culture is something that you really cannot let spiral out of control because I don't know any city who's allowed it to go out of control and then brought it back under control. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, you mentioned the uh, climate, but we also suffer from uh, high rents, uh, which is often uh, associated with high homelessness. You mentioned in your response there that we can't just sit, suddenly build a bunch of houses for these people to, to go into. Uh, in your book, um, you touched on a, a favorite of this podcast, which is uh, changing our, our um, uh, zoning or uh, housing standards to accommodate the reality that some people really actually need lower cost housing and and though well-intentioned, many of our, our zoning or regulation makes it impossible for um, uh, places uh, that these people could afford uh, to exist. Uh, go into what I think is a somewhat controversial assertion that we should, in a sense, relax our standards so as to ensure that people who don't have a lot of means uh, still have comfortable housing. Well, if you think, I think, again, I think the history is important. You know, when people are talking about homelessness is a housing problem, if it were not a housing problem, why is it so bad in places with high rents? I accept this argument. However, you need to bring in the history and talk about what are the changes in housing that led to the current crisis. And I think you're more talking about changes in quality than changes in supply. I think that revisiting regulations that would allow for more supply could be helpful and are maybe just logical thing to do for a number of reasons outside the homelessness context. I mean, if you're living in a jurisdiction that's hot where jobs are growing rapidly and housing units are not 
growing to keep pace with jobs, yeah, it makes sense to take another look at supply. But if new housing coming is going to be much more um, um, expensive than the homeless population is going to be able to access it, how do you achieve that sort of filtering or trickle down effect that's going to have an impact on homelessness, if that's the question we're talking about? And there, I think you need to be thinking about what are we doing on the quality front? Because, I mean, America has very high quality housing. Standards improve dramatically. And by world historical, you know, matched up against Europe, our housing standards are very high. But connected with that, the housing that's at the very lowest rung um, that used to provide for people just doesn't exist. And the connection between that and the tent city phenomenon is I think very tight. So if you wanna do something of a housing nature that's really gonna make an impact, I do think you ultimately do have to be looking at that aspect of it. Well, that's a hard one to swallow. I'm, I'm gonna think about that longer, sort of an anti-gentrification uh, movement that uh, in a sense uh, provides some, some, uh, some housing uh, stock for all needs of, a, of an urban uh, community. Um, that that's a difficult one, I think, to to figure out. So we're getting to our the end of our time together. I want to make sure our listeners who are interested in this topic and want to go more deeply, uh, where can they find your book? Which is interesting, but I, I also share for our listeners, it's got a hundred pages of footnotes, so <laughs> they can they can read the book and then just keep reading uh, uh, for much longer. I think it's wonderfully well researched. Tell us where we can go buy that book. Yeah, thanks. It's on Amazon, also directly from the publisher's website, and the publisher is Roman and Littlefield. Wonderful. And where can we find uh, your writing uh, on, a, on a daily basis? Uh, Manhattaninstitute.org. And also City Journal. I should give a plug for City Journal or in-house magazine where I'm a contributing editor. Wonderful. I read it. Uh, I enjoy uh, the work at Manhattan Institute. You guys are, are doing a great job down there. Uh, really appreciate it. So thank you very much, Stephen, for being on Hubwalk. I really appreciate your time, your work, your new book. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you've been a, a great asset to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Joe, for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.